Hello, my friends. It is Cooper. This episode of the Welcome to Cooperville podcast is being brought to you by Country Fest in Cadott, Wisconsin, coming up July 27th through the 29th. Oh, and don't forget the kickoff party on Wednesday, June 26th with the Blackhawk. They got tunes throughout the entire weekend from Sugarland, Luke Bryan, and Little Big Town, plus Cole Swindell, Brett Young, Phil Vassar, Lauren Elena, Neil McCoy, Justin Moore, Tracy Lawrence, and more. You can still go to countryfest.com and grab your tickets. They'll be available for you at the will call window. While you're perusing the Country Fest grounds, make sure you check out the all-new Top Tier Lounge. That bad boy is going to be up and ready to go for Country Fest 2019. And don't forget about registering your wristband for the cashless option, so you can just swipe your wristband and get whatever you need on the Country Fest grounds. Complete lineup, details, tickets, all the things you need, and camping at countryfest.com. Very excited for this week's episode, my chance to talk to Chad Lewis, paranormal investigator, researcher, and author, I believe he said, on his own, over 24 books, but he has lost count of how many he's contributed to or added chapters to. Dude is fantastic. Here we go. Welcome to Cooperville. Do you know what's fun to do in Cooperville? Pack up your shit and get the fuck out. Listen. www.welcometocooperville.com who the fuck says www anymore? I can't even say it. www <laughs> Stop that. The Welcome to Cooperville podcast. On demand anywhere quality podcasts are available. And some places where cheap podcasts are available. And the local gas station has some. Subscribe. Get updates. Feel better about your life. Welcome to Cooperville.com. Check, 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 one, check, check. Welcome to Cooperville! Make sure you use a coaster. The wife gets upset when we leave rings on the tables. I remember growing up uh, and going up to my grandparents' cabin up on Lake Pulaski and sitting around the campfire. And I think every child has this, uh, this recollection of their early years. Uh, having your aunts and uncles or your parents tell you these ghost stories. And I think when you started to maybe grow up a little bit, you maybe recognize these as kind of stories to keep kids, you know, protected from the outside world. And there was probably some subliminal teachings in there. Uh, but I think if you are uh, kind of in tune with uh, different dimensions and other things that are going on in the world, those ghost stories start to ring a little bit more true when you realize that the stories that your parents were told and their parents were told probably stem from some some sort of a semblance of truth. Chad Lewis, paranormal investigator, researcher, lecturer, all things paranormal, uh, joins me on the podcast. Chad, first and foremost, thank you so much for the time today, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, greetings from the back roads. <laughs> now, we've actually encountered uh, one another years ago. I worked in radio for uh, over two decades. And uh, back when you were up in this area, I remember uh, you making some stops and trips to the radio stations and talking about uh, some stories uh, about haunted Wisconsin. I know when the books came out, uh, you did some book tours and things like that. Uh, but I want to take you back because I know you're from uh, you know this neck of the woods. At what point uh, do you recall growing up that you were first struck with this kind of this yearning for knowledge about paranormal and UFOs and, and the things that you've devoted your life to. Well, I was born and raised in Eau Claire. Mm -hmm. And as a young kid, I was interested in the strange and unusual, but just as every other kid is nothing special about my interest level. In fact, uh, when I was growing up in middle school, you know, I wasn't really interested in the paranormal 
outside of what other kids are, you know, mm-hmm. just general, oh, Loch Ness Monster sounds really cool. Vampires seem great, but nothing special again. So it wasn't until I was about to uh, go off to study psychology at college at UW-Stout that I heard people uh, having UFO encounters in Elmwood, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which is one of the three UFO capitals of the world Wisconsin claims to have. And that really got me interested in why some people believe in this and others do not. And that's what got me started. So I always blame Wisconsin <laughs> for my interest. It just wasn't from a very young age. Now, when you started on this, and a lot of people blame Wisconsin for a lot of things, mostly beer consumption. But now that we know that we got three <laughs> UFO capitals uh, in the world here in the state, uh, it's good information to have. Um, now, we'll start on the UFO thing because I think— um, and I, I want to uh, preface this by saying my wife and I have a slight addiction to like the travel channel and watching, you know, it's, if they have an all day marathon of anything, monsters, UFO, conspiracy theory related, you may as well tap us out for the day because we are just locked and loaded on learning about all these things that you don't really hear about a lot in mainstream media. But uh, there was a certain UFO story. I remember uh, I was watching or reading about um, that. I wanted to get your take on. There is a... <clears throat> Excuse me. There is a conspiracy theory out there that uh, governments around the world are aware of extraterrestrial life existing, um, that it has visited this planet. And the reason that it is not made known to the public um, that these governments have this information or have this, you know, inside knowledge of uh, extraterrestrial life is that if we as human beings on the face of planet Earth, knew that there was a force above us, a force that um, could, in theory, you know, what, what, depending on which, I guess, uh, which alien movies you, you know, prefer to relate your aliens to. Uh, but if there was another species out there that perhaps could threaten existence of life on Earth, that it would, in fact, unify the planet and we'd all, you know, everybody would get along because we were all fighting against uh, a different opponent than one another. And that would obviously cease the end of wars. And uh, there's a lot of money to be made in the... Uh, <laughs> in the war industry. Um, do, do you, do you find any truth to that? Do you think that, uh, that there are, you know, I know everybody knows area 51 and Roswell and, and kind of the ones that have been, you know, more noted, uh, perhaps by Hollywood and perhaps by documentaries, but there are a ton of other places I know that you've seen before. Um, do you believe that, that alien life uh, does exist and that it has, as a matter of fact, been to this planet? Well, I certainly think that when you look at the vastness of our galaxy, mm-hmm and the billions and billions of other galaxies out there, that there has to be something out there. I mean, for me, my mind has a very hard time wrapping around uh, one light second, 186,000 miles per second. That's Mm -hmm. how fast light travels. And when you're talking light traveling that far for billions of years, that's just, the mind just can't comprehend that. So I think there's something out there. But the old joke is, The best evidence that there's intelligent life out there is they've never visited us, (laughs) you know, but I think that they probably have been here. Now you bring up an interesting point of that governments are hiding this because of, you know, the fear that it would ruin the, the war mongering machines and, and money. The other flip side to that is many believe that we're not ready for this information that. Look what Y2K did to us. And every time there's a small disease outbreak, people panic and you got all these people with their bug out bags and and the like that 
Imagine if they did say there's some other extraterrestrial being, it's all powerful, people would go crazy. But now, as the U.S. government's slowly starting to release some Air Force encounters of UFOs, you have to wonder why now. Right. For 80 years more, they've denied everything. UFOs don't exist. We haven't researched them. You know, we have other explanations. And now, like a lot of other countries, they're starting to declassify some of these things. And for me, I have to wonder, why now? Why the timing? Are they preparing us for something or is it just coincidental? Do you think, and this will tie into some other, you know, paranormal stuff that we'll talk about uh, later on in the podcast, but, you know, we live in such a a crazy day and age with technology that the the capabilities of uh, individual humans to to capture things and you know that 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 didn't exist you know even 20 30 years ago you know when the development of cell phones and camera phones and all these things that everybody said we we're never going to be have you know have these in our pockets now we have this you know, remote control to our life, that if we see something or something appears unusual to us, or, hey, we're looking up in the sky, and that's odd, you know, and it takes, you know, less than three seconds for most people to grab their phone, flip on the camera and start recording. You know, there has been a lot more footage captured of, you know, very strange spectacles in the sky, different things happening, some, you know, your atypical, uh, here's what we've all been told since we were knee-high to grasshoppers, what, you know, an alien craft looks like, into some other weird, um, you know, shaped, strange anomalies in the sky that people are starting to capture. Do you think that maybe there's a relation there or a correlation there between now people are starting to gather their own evidence, or maybe there was a point in time where the government was the only one that had that kind of that kind of capability. Now, average every day, you and me, uh, you know, can stand out in the night sky and capture something that may or may not have an explanation to it. It's really a catch 22 on that because on one end we do have more cameras. We have trail cameras, we have game cameras, security cameras and drones flying everywhere. Right. So we have more capability of recording these things, but on the flip side, Nearly everybody on the planet is skeptical of any video they did not take themselves. <laughs> you know, That's you could true. have a yeah. UFO fly into your studio right there, post it online, <laughs> and people would say, oh, that looks fake, completely fake, or that looks too good, it has to be fake. So I think we're at that point, unless somebody shoots the video, takes the picture themselves, they don't believe it. And it's only getting worse as more and more of these fake videos can be produced by, you know, children in their their home computer. So I think that hurts and harms us a bit to the credibility because you can go online and see so many hoaxes, either intentional hoaxes or people that have been hoaxed and they just didn't know it. Of all the places that you've visited, and again, it's it's a long and distinguished list of uh, of hot spots uh, for for um, extraterrestrial activity or UFO sightings. You know, which one struck you as, you know, the most magnetic? Like, okay, you you maybe witnessed some things, or um, you know, there there was something about a specific area that that you were drawn to it, and you say, you know what, I I could see this area being a hotbed for alien activity. A lot of the hotbeds. You get that feeling. Mm -hmm. If you go down to Roswell where the alleged crash took place, there's nothing around in the fields of New Mexico that you could see something crashing and not being found right away or not many people observing it. But for me, 
Area 51 out in Nevada was an interesting wake-up call because it's out in the middle of the desert. Obviously, nothing's around. But when you start driving out from Vegas or wherever you're leaving from, you start to notice as you're getting uh, an hour or so away these little odd things on the side of the road. And you stop and look and you see that they're cameras. And they're recording to see who's coming down that way because the only people traveling that way are usually going out to visit Area 51. Mm -hmm. And as you get closer, you see these cameras. And then when I was making my way just down the road, I saw these giant dust storms near the entrance, if you will. And I thought, that's odd. But when I stopped at the sign that says, we have the authorization to use lethal force if you cross over this line, that's where I stopped. <laughs> uh, I saw that those whirlwinds and dust storms were big SUVs coming up and stopping and parking up on a cliff overlooking that sign. And they were keeping track. They were reading the license plate, making sure you were going there uh, and you weren't crossing over. And I found that very fascinating because, mm -hmm. yes, if they're if they have top secret military aircraft and technology there, they want to protect it. But that's another place that's way out in the middle of nowhere. And you could see them having stuff out there and nobody would be the wiser. That always fascinated me about that area, um, not having been there myself, but just, you know, watching documentaries on it. And I think seeing pictures of the sign that you just mentioned um, is if the government has and, and no doubt that they do. And I think every government, you know, in a, in a non third world country has an area where they're secretly developing technology that's probably 25 years in advance of where we are right now. But you have this area in Area 51 that is well-documented, <clears throat> well-researched, uh, you know, as far as you can go up to that sign, as this place where if it's not, it's not alien activity, if it's not, you know, we, we, we have the craft and we have the, you know, the exoskeletons of these, uh, the remains of the aliens that were on board, you'd think they would find another place to, to carry out any military exercises or work on this technology is, is kind of a diversion. Like, yeah, we're working on military stuff over here. Well, not really, because actually it's in, you know, Chippewa underneath the river somewhere in some, you know, unknown bunker. You'd think they'd be a little more wise about that. I certainly believe that if they were working on extraterrestrial technology at Area 51, as soon as it really started getting the word out, or probably years before that, they they moved it somewhere else. Yeah. And it, it's certainly a, a lot more covert. And you bring up a great point that I think a lot of people that are seeing UFOs right now may be seeing military aircraft that's just decades above and beyond what we think our capabilities are. Mm -hmm. Very similar to people seeing what they reported to be looking like the stealth bomber a decade before it was made known that this we had the stealth bomber. So once they released that, this is our stealth bomber, people that had reported it said, that's exactly what I saw just a, you know, a decade before you let us know you had it. So I think that not only would they have changed the location, but there's probably numerous locations. And I think when you talk about, especially the stealth bomber, you know, there was even at, at that point, I remember it bring, being brought up that the technology of the stealth bomber when it came out, you know, was some sort of uh, extract of uh, what was discovered, you know, at the crash at Roswell is that we, we have found a way 
and the first example of that was with you know the stealth bomber that we you know maybe are aware of that we somehow extracted this technology from an alien craft and we were able to you know utilize some of that technologies um, in those you know in the stealth bomber and then you obviously you can derive whatever you want from that is if we're still trying to harness even more uh, information and technology and energy sources uh, from other encounters that maybe we're completely unaware of. There's a wonderful book out there called The Day After Roswell by Colonel Corsell, who claimed that was his career, reverse mm-hmm. engineering of crashed alien technology. And then you have other people, the controversial Bob Lazar, who said he worked out at Area 51 and he worked on reverse engineering these craft to figure out how they work. And when you think about how far technology has come in just the last 20 years, not to mention the last 100, it's just hard to believe that 100 years from now, what technology is going to be out there and where did it come from? Did we really just uh, come up with it ourselves or did we have a little assistance? Yeah, I think that, you know, we draw that conclusion a lot, you know, in the technologies that we have in, in our pockets. You know, I mentioned cell phones earlier, which are just, there's so much more than that. I mean, any question you have answered, any book you want to read, as you mentioned, you can just pop onto your phone and boom, you have that information right now. And that's, you know, really when you talk about iPhones and, and, and galaxies and things like that, I mean, we're in in the infancy of that type of technology that if you would have told somebody in the 90s, hey, we are going to have all these capabilities. The person coming door to door to sell the the Encyclopedia Britannica is no it's, that's no longer going to be a profession. But being a you know home video star making seven figures that's going to be a career. Um, they would have probably burned you at the stake even in the '90s because that was unfathomable. And that's you know merely you know 20 years ago. Imagine where we'll be uh, 20 years from now, and as you mentioned, 100 years from now. Who knows? Maybe we'll <laughs> we won't even be humans interacting with each other. We'll just be, you know, single cell organisms all attached to one mainframe computer. And but let's <laughs> let's save that one for another podcast. Yeah, I agree. And there's so much that's unknown about UFOs, and especially when you dabble into the abduction phenomena. Yeah, when you talk to people who believe they're abductees or contactees or experiencers. And they believe that these things have been coming here for quite some time, abducting people for medical experiments, even a hybrid uh, process. And you have to wonder as well that it doesn't seem logical that some being or species that could get here from wherever they're coming from would need to abduct people and do medical procedures on them. You think their technology would be so advanced. I mean, we can swipe the inside of your mouth and know all DNA, right? Some organization, a million years more advanced than us. I just can't believe that they'd have to abduct you, implant you with a hybrid baby and then extract it from you. You would think they would have better technology (laughs) than is being reported. So a lot of things don't match up with the uh, abduction legends and lore. And maybe that's part of the, you know, the whole I want to say conspiracy theory, but part of the whole, you know, I want to kind of diversion, you know, project. It, maybe it's a, a government-run thing, but you know, there's a lot of stories that it, that seem to not add up. Like you said, they, the the puzzle pieces don't quite fit together, and perhaps that is all part of some way of throwing off. Uh, and, and even the the videos that you talked about, people making hoax videos, which you know, some are your uh, your 14 year olds in their basement. Uh, thinking this would be fun, but maybe there is some, you know, some clarity to throwing some 
false stories out there for people to ingest. And then obviously that would create skepticism and, and, and that belief of the, the extraterrestrial beings that are out there, uh, maybe not being as real as, as some believe they are. Do you think, and this, this just happened recently in the last uh, couple of months, the discovery or the, the, the photograph that, uh, that we got of the black hole. And just, I, I watched something on that and the amazing amount of, uh, technology on earth that it took to get that one shot and algorithms and things that you know are so far above my pay grade, I can't even pay to think about them. But with how we are really starting to advance in our snapshots of space, you know, that we are starting to really piece together, maybe in a, in a, in some basement dwelling somewhere, perhaps in Roswell, trying to figure out a way that we could uh, colonize another planet. Do you think that there are more than likely some some evidence, some shots that have been taken as as we start to explore with telescopes and with you know with you know rovers that are going out that there's there's been some evidence that has been captured out there that we're just not privy to yet? I think there has to be mm -hmm. at that level and the amount of technology we have, which is probably very minimal compared to what you know, a hundred years is going to be, but I think there has to be that evidence out there or certainly things that are puzzling. And that seems to be the, the overall agenda of a lot of these things is confusion. When you get into the whole phenomena of men in black or women in black, mm -hmm. these things or people, whatever they are showing up to harass a witness after they've seen a UFO, Many of the witnesses report that they don't seem to know how to use a normal everyday objects like a pencil or a coffee cup right. and that they they dress really weird and show up in late model vehicles in pristine condition. And sometimes they'll say they're from one branch of the military, but they're dressed like from a different branch. So I think their number one thing is just pure confusion and puzzling where it seems so bizarre. Nobody would believe it. And I think that's the key to keep people not believing it is throw out these, you know, wild and crazy stories that, you know, it, it sounds like a crazy uncle somewhere like, oh, well, he always wears Hawaiian shirts and, you know, bright orange pants and, and one boot and one flip flop everywhere he goes. And, and I, I think that maybe again, all part of this, a master plan, if you will, to, to create a diversion, to create confusion and to create people going, well, maybe I believe, but you know, that's can't put these, can't put one and two together. Um, so many things I want to talk to you about. I know that um, The Big Muddy Monster uh, is a new book that's out. Um, I was sitting down. Again, I told you about my addiction to uh, to Travel Channel shows. And anytime there's really almost anything on that uh, that channel or channels like it. Here I am. I think we had, we had already started conversating uh, in the background about setting up a podcast. And whose pretty face do I see pop up on one of those shows? But Mr. Chad Lewis himself, paranormal researcher talking about monsters. Well, you bring up a great point is that when I started doing this 20 plus years ago, there weren't a lot of shows out there. You had in search of unsolved mysteries and a lot of those that were more mainstream, but focused a little bit on the paranormal. And now you look at travel channel, history channel, destination, America yep. discovery. They're basically the paranormal network. Really are all True. their shows are paranormal themed in some sort, whether it's ancient aliens or ghost hunting shows or cryptids and monsters. So I think a lot of the media now has really brought these stories and legends and folklore mainstream. 
that whenever I lecture, uh, it's nothing for people to raise their hand and tell me their UFO story. Mm-hmm. Where years in the past, people would come up and whisper it to you, making sure nobody was listening because they didn't want to seem like they were crazy. But because of the advent of all these TV shows, I think people are more comfortable coming forward. And I think the cool thing about about that is that it's brought to light a lot more, like you said, of the stories. Because I think growing up, you know, when it wasn't so prevalent, and I, I all of a sudden have the ringing of the Unsolved Mysteries theme and Robert Stack's voice in the back of my head, which used to terrify me as a child. Uh, really? <laughs> well, just da 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 And then Robert Stack would come on, and, and usually it was about some child abduction. And my mom was always <laughs> like, you better be good or that guy's going to come and get you. I'm like, that doesn't seem like a good parenting tactic mother. But, you know, I think, you know, when we were growing up, a lot of the stories were about your typical standard, almost Hollywood monsters and, you know, vampires and things like that. When now, when you watch these shows, there's a lot more about things like, you know, like the cryptid, um, like really getting in depth with some of these stories and a lot of them, you know, the, the derivatives of native American culture and the stories that, um, that they have passed on and the Wendigos and all these other things that are, you know, we never heard of as, as kids because they weren't part of that mainstream storyline that was being, that was being fed. Now you have all of these individual stories about, you know, how they, how they were created and where the origins are from. And now starting to attach, uh, in, using that technology, starting to attach some of these video footage and clips and, you know, somebody just scanning through the woods and here's this odd little creature that's peeking out from behind. And so the stories are think, starting to get more attention and given these TV shows now have a, have a you know, avenue to get out to the public. Well, I think you're right. When we're, we were kids, it was Loch Ness Monster mm-hmm. and Bigfoot. Yep. And these were really global brands and they were safe brands. Like Loch Ness seemed really cool to run into Nessie while you're out on a boat. (laughs) Today, you have to worry about hellhounds, banshees, chupacabra, the windigo, all these creatures that can cause you harm or maybe even your death, as many believe they are omens of death or harbingers of death. Where in the old days, it was, I think, like everything we look back on, it seemed like a simpler time. These cryptids were friendly at the very least, Mm -hmm. if not. Maybe you could have Bigfoot Harry in the Henderson. No, I was just going to say. Maybe Bigfoot could come and live with you. John Lithgow. He's going to come and hang out. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't as scary and terrifying, at least not in the U.S. as it is today. Other countries, they still believe in these creatures. Whenever I travel to another country and start asking around about these creatures, they say, why are you looking for them? We don't go looking for them. We stay away from them. <laughs> Crazy American, what are you doing? You know, where they believe these things have the supernatural power that they can take your sight, your hearing, or even your life just by encountering these. And even in America today, there are some cultures who believe that merely mentioning the name of some of these creatures is enough to put you on their radar so that they'll come after you. When you go looking for the weird, the weird will come looking for you and even saying I've been I've been lecturing on many reservation areas where people will come up, some of the elders, and mm-hmm. say, I know you're talking about hauntings or uh, strange creatures. There's one creature we don't want you to talk about. And I think you know which one that is. They don't even say the name. And of course it's the Wendigo. Right. And they because they believe still to this day 
that if you start talking about it, it will find you. It will come after you. And I love traveling the world when all these cultures still have a healthy respect for these legends. I want to talk about Bigfoot a little bit because um, I know that there's a there there's there always seems to be um, every few months or, or there's always a a sighting or somebody you know there's obviously now some TV shows as we talked about all those networks that are kind of devoted to uh, you know to bringing these uh, these stories to light and these groups that are out you know in pursuit of of Sasquatch and in pursuit of Bigfoot um, you know I a lot of the the, the naysayers about Bigfoot or Sasquatch is that there's no way this this type of creature could exist, you know, even on a global scale because because of population, because of how, you know, expansive our reach are, because of how, you know, technology and drones and all these, you know, trail cams, all these things that we can put out, there's no way that, you know, this creature could exist without having ever really been uh, officially spotted, I'll, I'll say, even though some may claim that they have footage of it or... Um, do you think, and maybe it's maybe it's a Wisconsin thing because I think you and I both know that you start traveling north of Highway Eight. There is a lot of open country up here, man. There is, I mean, you you get up into the forest up north, you know, and you lose cell phone reception, and you are kind of off the grid for a little bit. Um, I think maybe for us in in that type of environment, when we we've, we've grown, we kind of grew up here, and we we understand there are places that are scarcely populated where perhaps something like this could exist. And that's just in the state of Wisconsin. You start getting north into Canada, not even talking about overseas and uh, in places in Asia that, that have, you know, just millions of miles of, of uncharted territory. In, in your opinion, do you think that there is a, uh, a possibility that a creature like Sasquatch exists and perhaps even thrives and perhaps is an intelligent enough to have avoided, I don't want to say capture necessarily, but you know, from a, a video standpoint or a, any other standpoint up until, you know, this date in 2019? Without a doubt, I think there's still enough private land or mm -hmm. undiscovered land out there for some large creature to exist and has gone undiscovered up until today. But that's shrinking every year. There's still tons of that land available for them. But every year we're encroaching more and more, whether we're clear cutting for farming or for development. So I think that that's encroaching on them. But also there are so many things that don't seem to fit with Bigfoot activity. And there's a huge argument that's been raging for decades in the Bigfoot community, whether this thing is flesh and blood, mm -hmm. it's just some undiscovered animal like a black bear out there, or if it's something else. And there are so many things that don't add up. On the one hand, you have footprints, you have droppings, you have hair samples that are alleged to have come from a Bigfoot. But on the other side, people that shoot at it, it seems to be impervious to their weapons. It seems to disappear in front of people's very own eyes. Mm -hmm. It seems to appear for many sightings and then disappear for decades on end. Where does it go? What does it do? So there are so many things that lead a lot of researchers to start tilting to the idea that this thing is not flesh and blood, that it's something else, something more supernatural. Mm -hmm. What that is, I have no idea. But I think over the last 20 years, I've leaned more toward that it's not flesh and blood. Not saying that it isn't. It could be. I could certainly be wrong because like everything else in the paranormal, this is all speculation. 
But so many things don't add up that I think maybe there's more something more supernatural to it than just it being an undiscovered animal. You know, when you talk about these things having glowing red eyes mm. that terrify witnesses who are certain that the glow is emanating from the creature, not just the light shine, no known animal that we know of here on the planet has glowing red eyes walking through the forest. So things like that don't add up that it's flesh and blood, but who knows? You know, I think we, uh, we as humans, obviously, uh, we are, we are land creatures. We, we, uh, top of the food chain, you know, for the most part, we, we think we got a pretty good bead on things that are going on when it comes to being on land, because we do have the capabilities now to, to see the majority of it, not all of it, but the majority of it. But I do, uh, there was another show, um, where they, and this was probably several years ago when they started to look at the creatures of the depths of the ocean. Obviously we are not, uh, ocean friendly, you know, we are not meant to survive in, in water and underwater. Uh, we've developed some technologies that can get us down there, but, um, you know, some of the creatures that have been discovered and found in the depths, when you talk about really deep ocean, uh, no light existing, and you start to see these, these sea creatures and you go, they, they are things that are seemingly right out of a horror movie. Like Hollywood went down there first captured some of these images and then utilized them in, in some film um, because they are just, they're terrifying, uh, you know, from our definition of what terrifying looks like uh, with fangs and they, you know, there's electricity in some of them and they squiggle and they squirm and they're transparent. And it's just, it's a weird world down there. So when you, we, we see those things, I think we have a better acceptance of, well, we're not really from, you know, we don't reside from water. We are, you know, we, find a way to get down there and find these creatures. But on land, we feel like we have a pretty good beat on things. But sometimes history has proven that perhaps we are uh, a little too big for our britches. Is that maybe it? That there are things uh, like Sasquatch, whether it be existent, in existence as a, uh, a flesh and blood uh, animal or mammal or whatever it happens to be, or on a supernatural plane, that sometimes we, we think that we have it all figured out and then sometimes we realize that we really have very little figured out. One of my favorite things to research is that of sea serpents, mm. you know, lake monsters, creatures that we think either are unknown to science or a species that was thought to be extinct that really isn't. And you're right that it seems like the oceans are the last bastion of adventure and unknownness that we can't find these things because we're not very adept at going into the water mm -hmm. and just it should be noted that every year we're finding more and more new species yep. granted most of them are very small they're not eight feet tall covered in <laughs> hair and walking about cornfields but it still illustrates that and provides evidence that there are unknown creatures out there and i think for a lot of people the idea that bigfoot is running around the woods is not that far-fetched well, I, I, I'm a believer. I mean, I, I, I just not that I b believe in the actual entity of of, a, of a Sasquatch, but I think that there are, and likely are, things that are out there, even on land, in in areas that we have yet to, uh, to unearth. Uh, again, as the the human population continues to find ways to uh, expand and and take down more forest, I think we will continue to discover these things. Um, 
but I, you know, Yetis and Bigfoot, Sasquatch, all of these uh, things that historically through, I mean, from eons ago, you know, we're told about by natives and squalled onto uh, to walls uh, in caves that we found. Um, it, it, it's tough for me to fathom that we have, we as humans have have a good beat on things because I think there are still plenty of unknown in that realm that uh, that is yet to be discovered. Uh, speaking of the unknown realms, uh, Haunted Wisconsin, uh, I think, was uh, the first book I remember uh, attaching your name to. I think that's where we kind of first uh, met in uh, in the radio realm when you were doing some tours with that. You know, I remember driving. I can't remember the particular location, but it was somewhere in, in the Chippewa Valley. <clears throat> because of a story, I'm not sure if it came from your book or if it was just, you know, urban legend, but there was a house, uh, like abandoned house, uh, you drove past like a cornfield and, and you drove by this house. And when you went north past the house, it was just this old abandoned house. But when you came back down that road, you would notice that there was a light on in the upper bedroom. Now, I obviously was young and dumb and, and a skeptic, um, but actually witnessed that paranormal phenomenon happen. And I think that always, you know, from that day on, I've always had a uh, an open mind towards those things. It wasn't, nothing was ever a definite no. Um, even to when we moved into this house uh, that we live in now, we moved in here eight years ago and there was always just, just something. And we used to take videos and because we, we, when we brought our dog here um, and our dog was always very calm, like the chillest bulldog ever, but she would get up and look blankly into down the hallway and just start barking. This dog didn't bark. I mean, the mailman, neighbor, anybody could come over. That dog would not bark, but would look down the hallway and bark. So we started taking, you know, cell phone video of it, and we'd see orbs and things like that. So I think we've always been open-minded to uh, to this other plane of existence. And you have had global travels in haunted locations um, throughout the world. Um, tell me about some of your adventures and some of the things that, that you note that that really keep you hunting on a on a daily basis. Well, you bring up a great point about pets mm-hmm. is that a lot of people contact me about weird haunting or poltergeist or just supernatural things happening in their home. They are first warned, if you will, by their pets. Mm-hmm. They notice that their dogs are looking at something they can't see or their cats seem to be staring at a wall. And then all of a sudden they'll see a bright ball of light pass through or a spirit walk by. And we know animals already have better hearing and sight and smell than we do. So if there is such a thing as a sixth sense, maybe they have that too. And a lot of people are first triggered by what their animals are doing. But in terms of haunted places around the world, again, it's there's so many unique stories that this folklore is always moving, progressing, and morphing. It's never stagnant. I'll give you a quick example. In Lanesboro or Janesville, uh, Minnesota, there's an old doll house, it's called, mm-hmm. where for decades this creepy looking doll sat up in the window of this old house on the main road in town. And no one knew why it was there. Legend said that a boy committed suicide and his spirit was in there, that a family killed their daughter and she was in there, or vice versa. The owner never talked about why it was there, but it sat up there. And people would often walk by and claim that it would move and watch them as they walked by. And the dare became that if you walked by and the doll moved, you'd be cursed with bad luck until the day you died. 
And people, hundreds of people would travel there every year to try this dare to see if this doll would curse them. And then the owner died and the doll went missing and people in Janesville were terrified thinking they'd wake up in bed and find it next to them. <laughs> and then eventually it got put in the local town library staring out their front window. So now the legends have changed and incorporated the library in there that if you walk by the library, the doll will come to life. And oftentimes that's very common with these places. A haunted woods that has a great story, you know, gets turned into a parking lot. Does the legend stay there? Does the spirit stay there? Or the grocery store that is now a furniture store, does that affect a haunting or a spirit? So, so many of these folklore legends are always morphing. They're always moving. And I love tracking the changes because I can talk to seniors in an area and they'll tell me about a legend, a local legend. And then you talk to teenagers and they have a completely different version of that same legend as it has changed over the last 30 years. When you visit places um, that have you know, been witness to, to tragic events, whether it be murder or war um, or unthinkable, uh, unspeakable things, do you find uh, a, a certain sense of, of that energy when you travel to these places where you know that um, really bad things have happened, whether it was you know, a mass, ca- mass casualty situation, whether it was you know, some sort of crazy homicide with, with you know, extenuating circumstances that were around it? Can you, can you pick up on that when you travel to a place and you walk into a building, whether it's a, a home or a castle or an area, and just sense that that energy still resides, you know, whether it's in the structure, whether it's in the, the soil, whether it, you know, it, it's just in the, in the atmosphere of that area. Can you, can you feel it when you walk into those places? Even though I have zero psychic ability, mm-hmm. if there's a list of psychic ability people, I'm last in the world on that list. But I don't think you need it when you go to places where untimely deaths, accidents, suicides, murders, mob hits, and the like that you don't need to be psychic or intuitive even to pick up on these things. One of the first times I went to Ed Gein's farm in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. Ed Gein was a a murderer and grave robber in Wisconsin who used to uh, take his victims and then turn their skin into furniture and lampshades and the like. But as soon as I pulled up to his farm, which his farmhouse is no longer there, it was burned down many years ago, but the land is still there. And I had two psychics with me. And as soon as we pulled up, they refused to get out of the car. They didn't know where we were. They thought we were in nowhere, Wisconsin, which is where Plainfield is. Right. But they were picking up on too much negative energy. They said, we're not getting out. And even though you have zero psychic ability, it's hard not to be affected just knowing what went on there. But in terms of me going in blind to places, I think everybody has experienced that where you go into a place not knowing anything about it, and all of a sudden you either need to get out of there, something doesn't strike you as, I don't like this place, I don't know why, I have to leave, or vice versa, I feel like I'm at home. Have I been here before? Right. So I think even those of us who claim no psychic ability, we do have that ability to pick up on those things and and feel that energy. And some of these places that are attached to these untimely deaths and suicides and the like, they do have an energy that you just, it's just as though tragedy has forever cursed the area 
and that anybody who's there with the on the right station, if you will, picks it up. Yeah, we were up in uh, in Hurley, Wisconsin, uh, last fall. Uh, we went up there and, and went up to Ironwood, Michigan, and, and to Lake Superior as a kind of a, a family trip. And uh, one afternoon, uh, my wife and I went into uh, to this bar. Uh, it's on, on a corner of the main street there in Hurley, which is really just one street. And uh, they had renovated the bottom, uh, you know, the the bar half of it, uh, but the upper, the upstairs level at one point happened was a brothel. Uh, if anybody knows that area, uh, big logging towns and, and things like that up uh, in the northern part of the state of Wisconsin and in the upper peninsula of Michigan, uh, that was a big industry back in the day when it was still legal. So there was this upstairs level that they really hadn't done much to. Uh, they just had renovated the bottom of it. The owner happened to be there and uh, and said, if you you know if you guys want to go upstairs and just check it out. You know, you're free to do so. Middle middle of the afternoon, there was maybe one local in the bar and the bartender and the owner. Um, so we open up. There's a chain that that kind of says "keep out." Um, but we walked up this spiral staircase, and really kind of a weird sensation. I think just being up there. I um, mean, you know, you had all these rooms lining the the upstairs, and each room had a you know had a single sink, and it, and obviously you could tell that a lot of the construction that they had done on the on the downstairs had been brought up and kind of piled up. There was a, a room and it was room number three because it had a little three, not like a, nailed onto it, but it was just almost written on the door. And it was, there was, it was closed. It was locked. We didn't try to open it, but there was just something about that door that I was just like, gave me a really weird sensation. And again, just like you, I don't have any psychic ability. I, I don't, you know, pretend to, uh, to have any of those kind of abilities. Um, and, and probably wouldn't want them. <laughs> you know, I like to sleep at night, but just standing next to this door and, and my wife, you know, was like, Hey, are you, are you all right? Cause I think I stood there for several minutes, just kind of quiet and just looked at the door and, and was just kind of drawn to, it. and it couldn't really explain the, the, the magnet that was kind of pulling me towards it. Um, so I kind of got shaken out of it by her and we went back downstairs and, and, uh, and the owner said, you know, Hey, did you know that, uh, there was a, uh, a prostitute back in, I can't remember the, the year, uh, early 1900s, I think, and that a prostitute was murdered in room number three. And I just kind of bewildered me a little bit. And I was like, well, that's really strange because I was standing by, you know, room number three and kind of oddly uh, gravitated towards it. And, and not like in a negative way, but just kind of in like a suspicious way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's, there's got to be something with that type of energy, especially when you talk about uh, sudden death, you know, unexpected things that happen. Um, and when there's a lot of energy attached to that, whether it is a uh, a suicide or it is a murder or it just some sort of instantaneous death that you're something inside of you, the energy inside of you doesn't have a chance to really comprehend what it's going on, that it, it does somehow uh magnetize itself to to its environment and whether that's a, a new building or whether that's the, you know just the atmosphere around it uh, you, you got to think that that still exists and that people probably experience it more than they notice well that's an interesting point because so many people visit these places and often they're historic places mm -hmm. and they'll be walking through on a general tour nothing about ghosts hauntings none of that when all when the tour's over they'll often approach a tour guide and say did anyone ever report anything about this? And usually the tour guide has to tell them that's where the event took place so that 
unsuspecting visitors often will pick up on things that can then be confirmed as this is the area where something happened. And a lot of the people who contact me to report something of the supernatural, they often will state that they don't even believe in it. They'll say, I don't believe in ghosts, but this is what happened to me. And a lot of the people are not out actively searching for it. Like in your situation, you're just checking out this old brothel. Mm -hmm. And that's when things happen. When they're not expecting it, when they're not looking, they're not bringing a ton of equipment with them. It just seems to have no rhyme or reason to when these things happen. I see you've had a chance to uh, to go to Transylvania and uh, investigate vampires and, and Dracula and things like that. Um, tell me about that experience, because uh, I do know that there is an associated story with the state of Wisconsin when it comes to uh, to vampires. What I loved about Transylvania is that when you got out of the big cities, much like the U.S., that their smaller cities and rural areas were a lot like the U.S. would have been 100, 150 years ago, where people were still on horse and carriage, no electricity and the like. And they still had a healthy respect for this legend. But their vampires are a little bit different than the vampires here in the U.S., mm -hmm. where here in the U.S., all of our vampires are supermodels who twink, <laughs> who twinkle in the, the sunlight. Over there, they consider them hideous monsters that oftentimes they can't speak. They're often dressed in their tattered burial clothing that's all ripped up. A lot of their mouth has been chewed off or their arms have been chewed off in their insatiable hunt for human flesh. And they're very... You know, they're not very intelligent. They move very slowly, much different than the vampire we think of here. That's the aristocrat living in a castle, drinking fine wine. So I love that they still consider it a monster over there. And they would uh, lots of times the staking wouldn't be so much to kill the creature or the vampire, but it would be literally to stake the creature to the ground so it couldn't rise up. Oftentimes they would decapitate the dead and bury the head separately from the body. So if the head rose up, it wouldn't have the body and vice versa. And in very rural areas, I heard stories of people having their loved ones um, cremated. And then they would take those cremated remains and grind them up into a fine powder. And they use that powder to make a soup. And the entire community would drink this soup, thereby spreading out the spirit of that person so they would not be powerful enough to come back. Unfortunately, or maybe luckily for me, when I was there, I was unable to try any of that soup. <laughs> but again, it's evidence that these people hold their legends with a lot more serious of an eye than we do here in the U.S. Definitely not the neighborhood barbecues that we got invited to as kids, right? That's, that's, a, that's a little yeah. on a different scale. Like, try the soup. Now I'm good. I'll stick with the hot dog. I'm good over and, here. Of course, here in the U.S., in Wisconsin, we have the Mineral Point vampire that was spotted in a cemetery on the outskirts of Mineral Point. And it was seen first at, uh, late at night when a police officer saw what he thought was a very tall, very pale, very ugly vampire, complete with a cape. And as he gave chase to this thing, it easily flew over a fence and disappeared into the night. Once his report became public... Hundreds of people were calling into the police department reporting vampires all over Mineral Point. It got to be so much that the police officer who originally reported it moved away to a different police force out of town 
and refused to talk about it ever again. But those witnesses were convinced they had seen a vampire out at Mineral Point at Graceland Cemetery. It amazes me, the state of Wisconsin, and you being uh, you know a former resident here growing up here, um, you know, we've talked about Ed Gein, uh, you know, and, and all the, and Ed Gein's, you know, kind of the tipping point of, of the serial killers that we've been uh, privy to, you know, calling Wisconsin home. Uh, we talk about Jeffrey Dahmer in there as well. Uh, it, all these stories, you know, it, it, and I'm, I'm guessing in your travels, uh, and maybe, you know, I'm just more eyes open to it because I'm from here. But in your travels uh, to different states and different areas, does every state and area that you've been to kind of have their own uh, paranormal culture, if you will, that the different places that are, you know, known to you know be haunted or, or have that energy or uh, cryptids or things like that? Does every area you've been to kind of have their own own subculture like that? They do. And what I find interesting is that no matter where you go, you can dig something up. Mm-hmm. Uh, my colleagues, Kevin Nelson and Noah Voss, we have this idea that we want to do some time of just randomly we're going to pick a town nobody's ever heard of and nobody's ever been there. All three of us will go into town. We'll have 24 hours and we'll meet back and see who came up with the best legend from town, who was able to discover the best local legend. Because every state has stories. Sometimes they're a little bit different from state to state. You know, out west you have spirits of the Wild West figures. Mm-hmm. In South Dakota you have Calamity Jane and Wild Bill Hickok spirits and a lot of native spirits. Here in the Midwest, believe it or not, we have a lot of lumberjack lore. We have a lot of prohibition gangster lore, mm-hmm. farmer lore down south. So a lot of places just have a little difference. But this there's a lot of similarities to these stories as well. But I think it's a difficult question to answer whether one state has more than any other state, because it could be that we just simply have more researchers here in Wisconsin collecting these stories that maybe Minnesota has more, but nobody's collecting them or that it's something about the Midwest that people feel comfortable talking about it where maybe Florida has the most UFOs going on, but people don't feel comfortable talking about it, so they never get reported. So it's difficult to determine that because we really don't have a lot of the statistics. But what I can tell you is having been in 40-plus states and 12 different countries is that stories are everywhere. You cannot go somewhere and throw a rock without hitting a legend. You find yourself uh, doing a lot of uh, challenges, I've noticed, uh, and doing things that really, yeah, <laughs> that uh, you're, you're, you do not heed the warnings of, hey, try this and this will happen. You know, sit on this chair and you will be, you know, the rest of your life will have bad luck. You've taken thousands of these challenges, you know, at, at different places that you've gone. Um, which uh, one of these challenges, uh, has, has anyone ever affected you Um and, and which one was uh, maybe instilled the most fear inside of you? Yeah. And these are dares, dares supernatural yeah. dares. Mm-hmm. They would often pop up and the dare would be attached to the legend that in order to see the woman in her mausoleum, you'd have to run around the mausoleum three times or mm-hmm. you'd have to do something in order for the legend to come true. You jump over the witch's grave and she'll show up. And oftentimes it's connected with mishap, misfortune and death that. If you do these things, 
bad things will happen. People contact me claiming that they did the dare and they broke up with their significant other, or they lost their employment, they got in a minor car accident, or even they know somebody who died doing these legends. And I love doing them. I love taking the dares. A couple of them, I guess you could say, have come back to bite me a little bit. There was a dare in Iowa City, Iowa. It's called the Black Angel of Death. And it's this statue out at their cemetery. It's a big bronze statue that has turned black. And the legend is that if you go out there and you touch the statue, it'll come to life or you'll die. Or if you kiss in front of it, you'll die. If you're a virgin, you'll die. If you're not a virgin, you'll die. Basically, if you go out there, you'll die. And yeah, and people love it. They'll go out there and the (laughs) people see it flying around and moving and the like. And I thought it was interesting. The last time I was there, I was with my colleague, Kevin Nelson. And we were there filming the dare and we left about 3 a.m., went back to our hotel in nearby town. And we got up the next morning to come out and we noticed that Kevin's car had been sideswiped in the parking lot that evening from the time we got there at late at night to when we were leaving in the morning, somebody swiped his car in the lot. And we knew it happened in the lot after the legend because whoever did it parked right next to him, still had the paint still on their car. So that's one where, was it the curse of the angel or just a coincidence? I happened to also be in Iowa at a place called Terror Bridge that is said that if you park your car on the bridge, the spirit of this murdering mother will come and try to throw you out of your car onto an oncoming train. And I was there a couple of years ago after doing the dare, standing there trying to get thrown by this phantom woman. As I was leaving, I received a speeding ticket, my first ticket in 20 plus years. And again, is that paranormal or just simply a coincidence? And if it is paranormal, I consider myself getting off lightly <laughs> with just a speeding ticket or a swiped car and not, you know, death or dismemberment. But So many people contact me claiming that they've had bad things happen that they won't do the dares. And even some of my colleagues refuse to sit like in the devil's chair or Mm -hmm. the death chair that if you sit in there, you'll die within a certain amount of time. And luckily, knock on wood here, I'm still alive after doing thousands of these dares. Well, you mentioned your colleagues. uh, There's been some challenges and dares that they have not uh, been up to task on. Has there ever been one that that you were like, no, nah, I'm good on this one. I'll pass. Or are you always accepting of the challenge? I and I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say this as a challenge <laughs> because people are going to contact me about ones that I've never heard of yet, but mm. I have not met a challenge that I haven't done yet. And if it's legal or, you know, semi-legal, if you have to trespass at night into a cemetery, you know, theoretically I've done that before. Right. Uh, not saying I have, but theoretically I have. But if as long as it's, it's legal and it's not hurting anybody else, there's mm. I can't think of any dare that I, I wouldn't want to try just because that's the fascinating part of it, the belief system. What is it about human perception? What is it about our belief system that believes if you do something that a curse is going to befall you, that it makes no logical sense whatsoever, but the power of belief is so strong that I think for a lot of people, they bring it into reality. You've lectured, uh, you know, for, like you said, for two decades. Uh, I know you're on a big uh, lecture run right now. Um, 
What is the question that you get asked likely the most when you uh, when you lecture in front of groups? Probably either what's the scariest place you've ever been to or do you get scared on these adventures? And the do you get scared on these adventures is easy to answer. And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. If you're going to these places and you're not getting scared, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> these are creepy places and it's human nature to get scared. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a lot of fun, that adrenaline kick of even if you don't believe in werewolves, which a lot of people don't. When you're walking down Bray Road in Wisconsin, where the beast of Bray Road is said to, to lurk, you can't help being there at night by yourself to pick up your pace a little bit. I did a dare in Lake Champlain where the champ monster, the sea serpent, is said to reside. And again, even if you don't believe in sea monsters, when you're in these big lakes or rivers and there are garfish and sturgeon and giant mm -hmm. catfish, very scary fish that your mind can't help but when a branch or twig brushes up against your leg to conjure up images of this creature wrapping itself around you. And I think that's the fun part is swimming in these lakes knowing that maybe it'll be the supernatural or the natural that could get me. I remember being uh, when I was growing up again. I mentioned my uh, my grandparents' cabin on Lake Pulaski, and there was uh, there was sturgeon in the bottom of that. I mean, these prehistoric fish, um, you know, that uh, it wasn't very often, but you know, either on a, a early evening or an early morning, you would witness these things crest the water and come out, and it you know it would give you the the heebie-jeebies, the fact that this thing is in a body of water that we used to swim and frolic and play in and, you know, water skiing, all this other stuff. But here at the bottom of this, uh, you know, this little lake in nowhere, Wisconsin on Lake Pulaski, you know, this thing existed. And I think when you, you put that into perspective of that can be real. And when you see, you know, what sturgeon actually look like, they're not, they're not cute fishies. They're not something that you, you know, <laughs> take a picture of and, and give to your children. You no, know, they're, they're kind of frightening looking, uh, sea creatures, if you will. So on that scale, when you talk about place, you know, like you talk about the Loch Ness Monster, you talk about, um, you know, these, these sea serpents that, you know, definitely are in the realm of, of existence because of the fact that we are not native to water. Um, I think it's just cool how all these stories, you know, kind of combine themselves uh, into, you know, for you, you know, 20 years of a, of a career and of a, you know, a life that, that, continues to let you travel and, and to see places and talk to people and experience things that um, that people like myself just really enjoy hearing the, hearing the other side of. Um, I do want to talk about this before uh, before we let you go. Uh, tell me about the uh, the Big Muddy Monster. Sure. The Big Muddy Monster is basically a Bigfoot-looking creature mm -hmm. down in southern Illinois, which if you've never been to southern Illinois— Forget what you know about Chicago, Springfield, and the like. <laughs> Southern Illinois is the South. The accents there, the swampy lands there, the folklore's there. And for over 100 years, maybe longer, this giant beast has been seen along the Big Muddy River, which is big and muddy. That's why they call it the Big Muddy. And it comes out, and it's unlike a lot of other Bigfoot creatures, it's white-furred. It has a very light color fur, which other Bigfoot do as well, but majority are dark brown mm -hmm. or black. And it seems to be caked in mud from the waist down, but the top part seems to be very well groomed. It has more of a coned head and weird ears and glowing red eyes. And since the early 1900s, people have reported it. 
In the 1940s, they offered a $100 reward for the capture of this monster, which nobody took advantage of. And up until today, people are terrified of this monster patrolling the riverbanks of southern Illinois. Now, that's just one of, one of the books. And, and you've had what do you have a, a, a total tally, a number of books that you've uh, either, you know, done yourself or contributed to or been a part of? It's got to be a pretty astronomical number at this point. Well, books that I've written or co-wrote uh, are, I think, the big muddy that just came out about a month ago is number 24. Wow. But I've lost track on how many I've contributed to or different books that have used the case or asked me to write a chapter for. And I love that because it, it runs the whole spectrum of paranormal from mm-hmm. haunted places, crop circles, UFOs, mysterious creatures, out-of-body experiences, synchronicity. You know, I'm interested in all of it. And there are a lot of researchers who specialize. They only do UFOs or crop circles. And that's fine if that's what your interest is. But I found that so many of these things seem to be connected, that when you go to Lake Superior, which seems to be a beacon for paranormal activities, Mm -hmm. not only do you have reports of phantom ships, sea serpents, men in black, UFOs, something seems to be special about the area where they're all combined. So if I was just interested in Bigfoot sightings and somebody sees a UFO with the Bigfoot, that wouldn't really interest me. And I, I, I don't understand how it can't be interested in all of it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, you run the gamut, man, covering, uh, all these, all these stories that are out there. And I think it's, you know, one of the, the coolest thing about, uh, about what you're doing and what you have done, uh, for, like you said, over 20 years is you're bringing a lot of these stories that not that they would have faded off into non-existence, because I think you've, you've meant, even mentioned that these stories will live on. They will be passed on, uh, whether it's in your rural areas or in, in different countries. When you talk about places that, that aren't as technologically advanced as we are, or but that these stories will, will continue to grow. What I think you're doing is is really bringing them to a forefront that at, at the very least, if people either read one of your books or, or go to one of your lectures or happen to catch you on uh, one of the TV shows that you've uh, that you've been on, is it, it makes them think a little bit, you know, and and maybe that that thought process makes them more aware of their surroundings and and maybe they become more you know, open to, to, to witnessing things or, um, just more observant, I think, to the world around them, which is uh, something that I think we all could, uh, utilize a little more in this day and age. when we tend to walk down the street, uh, looking at our phones or, um, you know, not being very present in the moment. But I think that's a very cool aspect of, of what you continue to do. And that's why I was so elated to get you on the podcast is just to have you, you know, give us little snippets of, uh, of some of these stories so that they can continue on and that it does bring some light and, and, and hopefully garner some more interest, uh, not only into what you're doing, but into, you know, worlds beyond, uh, whether that's UFOs, whether that's, you know, Bigfoot or cryptids or haunted places or spirits or, you know, these stories that have been passed on, you know, people, you know, start to get a little more in tune with, uh, with other realms that are pretty much circling right around us. My favorite part of the lectures is that after the lecture, days later, people will contact me and say, after we left your program, my husband or wife or my friends, we all went to a coffee shop or a bar and we talked about it the whole night, whether we believe in these stories and we addressed all the different angles and we really had fun 
talking about them. And that's what I hope people do that. Hopefully they go to my programs and then make up their own mind. And like you said, I hope it opens up another back road for people to go and explore. You know, the great thing about non-believers, and we'll kind of wrap on this. The great thing about non-believers in, in any and all of these uh, uh, things that you that you research and, and lecture on is they always have a story. Every non-believer, it seems like they have a story, but then they'll find a way to you know, debunk it themselves. Like, well, this one time, you know, I kind of saw this shadow figure, but I figured it could have been a car, even though we were in an area where there was no traffic going by. It, it always seems like when, when, when I've had discussions with, um, uh, with people who, who adamantly don't believe in extraterrestrial life or, you know, uh, beyond the grave stuff or any of this, uh, things that you, that you, we've discussed today, they always have some sort of story or something that they, oh yeah, I remember this one time, but you know, it was probably just this. There's always a, an out for the non-believers. It seems like. I agree. I, I get that quite a bit of people saying, and that, that happens with people in the abduction field as well, mm. that they'll even tell themselves, that's odd. I saw a five foot squirrel with large black eyes in the, my backyard, or I didn't know owls could get four feet tall and talk to you. <laughs> and it doesn't register to them that maybe they were experiencing something out of the norm. And it, it seems it, you can expect it because sometimes when people do have these experiences and they come to grips with it, for many of them, it's a life-changing event that it changes their entire outlook, their perspective, their beliefs. And it's not just something that they pass off a day later. It sticks with them for many, many years. Chad Lewis, thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate the time and, and all the stories and the insight and stuff. Uh, ChadLewisResearch.com is the website. I know you have a ton of dates uh, up here in the uh, the great state of Wisconsin and, and surrounding states, but do want to uh, specifically point out August 8th at Chippewa Falls, right down the road from us uh, at the uh, Chippewa Falls Public Library. Going to be doing a lecture on UFOs. So maybe if you're in the area and you want to swing by the studio, uh, we have, we dude, we could go on for hours and hours on the things that, uh, that you've seen, and I'd love to have you in uh, if you're up for it, man. Yeah, let's do it again, August 8th. Awesome. Chad Lewis, thank you so much for the time, and we will be in touch. And uh, again, everybody, keep an eye out. You never know what you're going to witness. 